Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 12 as we read verses 46 through 50. Hear now the word of God. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, would you show us today not only our need of a savior, but show us the savior himself. Use your word to take our eyes and our hope away from ourselves and place it all on Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a couple chapters back now from where we are in Matthew. But do you remember back in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus was talking about how Christians would need to be prepared to lose their life for his sake? And he told us in that passage in Matthew chapter 10 that we might even find enemies within our own household for following Jesus. He told us that if we love father or mother or son or daughter more than him, then we aren't worthy of him. And those sort of statements are, are, are perhaps easy to make, pretty easy for, for me to just say, right? Um, and we might be tempted to think, well, it's easy for Jesus to say those things too. But it's not actually for someone who's had their family relationship strained and tested by their faith in Christ. Uh, up until that point, all of it is purely hypothetical, or at least it sounds purely hypothetical. And yet we know from passages like this one today that actually Jesus put his own convictions about his family into practice. Um, Jesus himself was ready at a moment's notice to jettison even his own family if they got in the way of the mission he came to accomplish. It's a very hard thing to say, I think, because... In the Christian world, we can sometimes struggle with having a balanced understanding of the importance of the family. Um, it's hard to be balanced. Right? It's, hard to, it's hard to love a good thing appropriately so that we don't put it higher than God. Um, I'm sort of an all or nothing person. If something is good, I want to be all for it and I want to be excited about it. And I want to be enthusiastic about it. And if something's bad, I can become passionately opposed. So, so oftentimes I fall into these false dichotomies. I either have to love something or I have to hate something. And that's sort of the way I tend to be at times. And warning about the family becoming an idol can sound like a criticism of the family, uh, which it's not. We sometimes think of idols as corrupt things, evil things that, that ruin us, that we shouldn't have anything to do with. And yet in reality, an idol is nearly always something that starts out as a good thing and a blessing, and then it becomes our ultimate master. So an idol is something that starts out good, and then it becomes the idol by virtue of the way that we cling to it. And here's what makes the balance so hard. We live in a culture that has become so estranged from the biblical idea of family 
that it seems obvious to us, especially if you've lived in the church for some time and you've, you know what the Bible says about the goodness of the family, it's very easy for us to say that, that, the, that the culture is so confused and so wrong that we need to lean into the thing that we know best and that we have from God, which is true. And it seems like in some ways, though, it's possible to overcorrect. Because those who have children can become so drawn into their own family unit. They can say the family's important. So we're going to pull inward. We're going to lean inward so that there is nothing else and no one else. Um, the family becomes essentially the center of one's life. Um, parents can do this. They can place all their hope, all their expectation on their children to the point that children feel crushed. And then those children either live up to those expectations in which, they be, in which case they become even more important and elevated to the parents. Or else the child fails to live up to the parents' expectations and those expectations crush them and send them fleeing from their overbearing parents. And so because our culture today is so confused about the family, this is a moment I think where Christians say, this is an area where we are not confused. And so we lean into it. But we must be cautious that even in our overcorrection, even in our correction, the blessing can become an idol. I think then in this moment, Jesus' example becomes especially precious to us. And, and I want us to see all of this under three, three points. Uh, and the first is this, that Jesus had a physical family. It may sound extremely non-controversial, and I think it is. But for some branches of the Christian church, it's very controversial, which we'll talk about. Um, second, Jesus is building a spiritual family. That's our second point today. And then third, Jesus resisted the idol of family. Uh, we'll get around to what I, what I first began talking about here, right? How does Jesus hold his family rightly without loving them such that they become an idol to him? I think the model of what Jesus does here, it, it strikes that balance exactly the way it's supposed to be. So let's just... If you feel fuzzy about what I'm saying, then let's keep going and maybe we'll be clearer by the end. We need to start at square one for reasons we'll understand in a moment. Square one, point one, is Jesus had a physical family. Look at verse 46 again. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, we'll talk about what they're here for in just a moment. Uh, but for the moment, just notice the language of Matthew. Jesus has a mother. Jesus has brothers. The word brother here is an ordinary word in the Greek. And you will probably not be surprised to know that it is translated and it means the word brother. Um, it means brother and it gets translated as brother. Um, why would I make a big deal about this? When we talk about the phrase the Virgin Mary... We as Protestants, right, we're, we're a Protestant church, we're Presbyterians, we're part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, we as Protestants mean, when we say that Mary was a virgin, when we say the Virgin Mary, we mean that she gave birth to Jesus, and before she gave birth to Jesus, she was a virgin, right? Before she knew her husband Joseph, she was a virgin. We're affirming the virgin birth of Jesus when we say the Virgin Mary, um, but when Roman Catholics call her the Virgin Mary, they mean something very different. They don't mean that she was a, a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but that she actually remained a virgin for the rest of her life. And so in the Roman Catholic teaching, she never knew a man for the rest of her life. 
Even though she was married to Joseph, she never physically knew her husband. Um, In their view, Joseph, her husband, was never physically intimate with his own wife for the entirety of their marriage. Now, this, of course, creates a dilemma, pretty major dilemma. If Mary never slept with her husband, where did these brothers come from? Well, we know from other passages, Jesus also had sisters. So where does this where does this family come from? By the way, um, we know numerically that it's, if, if uh, the calculations I've seen are right, then Jesus has eight siblings, or he has six siblings and two parents, right? That's a family of eight. Um, their family needed a conversion van to get around. They were like the, the big homeschool family with the big van. This is his family unit. He's got a big family, uh, at least by modern American standards. Um, we have four children, and sometimes we go into places, and people are like, are you Roman Catholic? Why do you have so many children? Uh, you could just get a dog. That's enough. That's, that's Portland. That's very Portland. Um, no problem with dogs. You've got one. Uh, I even fed him this morning. Um, <laughs> but how does the Roman Catholic handle this? They say that this is Jesus, these are really Jesus' cousins. Um, that these are really Jesus' cousins. They were just raised alongside of Jesus as if they were brothers and sisters. But we also know that in the Greek there is a word for cousin. And it is not the word that is used in this passage. The word used in this passage is only ever used for the ordinary uh, sibling that comes from your father or and mother from, by ordinary generation. And so I'm not going to belabor this, but these are Jesus' biological half-brothers and sisters. There's no other textual indication. Nothing in the text would ever lead you to believe that these are not biologically related to Jesus. Now we say Jesus is their half-brother, of course, because while God is his biological father, Mary really is his biological mother. Um, our church confession, I don't know if you ever think much about this. I remember my one of my professors, Derek Thomas, talking about the fact that if you looked at Jesus's face, you would have seen a family resemblance to Mary. Um, that if you looked at Jesus's face, that you would be able to say he has his mother's resemblance. He looks like his mother. Um, he's, he's genetically connected with his mother. Um, our, our confession says Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. Of her substance. In other words, if we're using scientific language here, we're talking about the egg that Mary's body produced. And Jesus was made from that. Jesus was conceived of her substance, meaning her genetic material. She didn't just give birth to him, but she was Jesus's biological mother and Jesus was her biological child. You might be thinking, Christmas is in December. What are you talking about this for, right? (laughs) Well, we're getting here, right? Jesus was not, however, made from Joseph's genetic material. He, he bore no physical resemblance to Joseph, um, except as a human being with a face and hands, right? But what this means is that while Jesus is, he was Jesus' his earthly father, he wasn't Jesus' biological father. So here's something I want to say. Jesus was adopted by Joseph as his very own son. Luke 3.23 says Jesus was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And our conclusion from this is that Jesus had a mother and he had a father. Jesus was adopted by Joseph. But we also see throughout the New Testament that Jesus is consistently called 
the son of Joseph. It's how he's identified in at least two times in the Gospel of John, for example. Only in Luke does, does, does Luke attach that phrase as was supposed. Luke includes that, I think, as an affirmation of the virgin birth. But every other time, Jesus is called the son of Joseph. What does this mean? I'll tell you one implication of what it means. And this is very precious to anyone. If you have ever adopted um, or if you ever were adopted as a child, here's what's really precious. Joseph was really Jesus's father. Joseph was not Jesus's pretend father. Joseph was Jesus's real father. And that is because it is the Bible's teaching that an adoptive father is a real father. And an adopted child is their real child. Not to be crude, but we need to resist reducing fatherhood to simply being a biological father. The fatherhood is more than simply sharing DNA with someone who is your offspring. Being a father means being a protector. It means leading your family in worship. It means teaching God's law to your wife and to your children. It means discipling and loving your children by God's word, giving them the thing they need more than they sometimes know. Because children oftentimes don't understand how much they need God's word. They need a father to give them God's word, even when they don't want it. Um, True. Jesus wasn't made from Joseph's substance, and yet Joseph was Jesus' father. Why am I belaboring this? Because oftentimes I think people may be tempted to think of adoption as if, well, we're all going to together collectively pretend this is your child. It's often said by people who lack an understanding that adopting a child doesn't make them your child. It means they're, they're your pretend child. You know, I have just this last week. Um, I, while I was in Alaska, I have a friend in Alaska who's a pastor there, and I haven't seen him in 20 years. I went to college with him in Kansas, and we were sitting with him, and we, he was talking to, to us about uh, me and the elders uh, that we were sitting with, and he was talking to us about the fact that he's, a, he's got a family of nine, and uh, ha- more than half of his children are adopted. And sometimes people will ask the question, well, which ones are your real children? which is a deeply, not only a deeply hurtful thing to say, but it demonstrates a misunderstanding of adoption altogether. All of them are his real children. All of them are his real children. Some of them are his biological children, but they're all his real children. We need to make sure and let God dispel that misunderstanding for us. This is not just a cultural thing where we're saying we're going to really double down on this. Listen to what God says in his word. Joseph was called Jesus, his father, and Jesus was called Joseph's son. What an incredible gift Joseph was given to care for and adopt Jesus as his son, to bring him under his protection, to teach him a trade, to raise him up as his own. Jesus needed a father. Jesus needed an earthly father. He needed someone to first call Abba. Someone to obey perfectly, even following him in his, in his career. Someone to teach him what it is to be a man, to live as a man. Joseph really was Jesus' father. Jesus really was Joseph's son. Here's what this means. It means our God is an adopting God. 
That actually, and actually takes us perfectly into the second point. So that's my transition to the second point. The second point this morning is Jesus is building more than a physical family. He's building a spiritual family. Look what Jesus then says in verse 48. These people are outside. They're they're Jesus's physical family. They want to talk to him. And then in verse 48, it says, he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What's happening here? It appears his physical family is is coming to him. And they're not coming to him because, well, we just miss you, Jesus. Please come home. We want to hang out with you. But they're coming because of some selfish reason that comes from self-interest. We, we know from John chapter 7, verse 5, that not even his brothers believed in him. That's a quote from John 7, 5. Not even his brothers believed in him. Um, later, we know that Jesus' family did come to believe in him. Uh, we know that his brother James ended up dying for the faith. Um, but at this point, that is not the case. This is not a believing family. These people are not united to Christ by faith by, or of any sort. We also know that some of the scorn Jesus received was also experienced by his family. They're getting heat from Jesus' own ministry in Galilee. Um, Mark 6.3, the people ask this question. They say, where did he get these things? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? See what's happening. It's not just Jesus who's been under the microscope. It turns out because of his ministry, they're falling under the microscope too. Um, They're under scrutiny as well. And it appears they are tired of their family name being disparaged by Jesus's enemies. It, It appears that they want to put out the fires that Jesus is setting around them And this moment is one of their attempts to address it. And they're using their status as his physical family to get to the front of the line, as it were. They want to get to him and they want to use their status to get them there. We actually get a deeper glimpse into this moment and some with some extra details that Mark's gospel includes. If you were to turn to and you don't have to, I'm going to tell you what it says. But if you were to turn to Mark 3.20, there it tells us that his family thought he had gone crazy and they came to take him home. Um, the passage says that they wanted to seize him. Um, they wanted to commit the guy, right? That's what they wanted for him. And so something that we, we realize is that Jesus spoke from his own suffering when he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Jesus is speaking from experience here. He understands that he is without honor at the moment with, it, with his own family. His own family doesn't honor him. Uh, He spoke from experience. This was not abstract to him. This was not hypothetical. This is him saying, this is what my life is like. I'm without honor in my own household as we speak. But what's Jesus doing? He is building his own spiritual family. He's building his own spiritual family. Here are my mother and my brothers. He's looking around himself in this room. He's seeing sincere believers, people who trust him, people who who want to hear what he teaches and want to hear what he says. And he says, I see my family in this room and we are not biologically related. Actually, they are, but very far back. So Jesus has physical family. They want to meet with him, but he's building a spiritual family. He's busy building a spiritual family. I mentioned before that Jesus was really Joseph's son. 
Um, sure, Joseph wasn't his biological father, but, but that doesn't mean Joseph wasn't his real father. If you look at Matthew and Luke's genealogies of Jesus, they trace Jesus' family line through Joseph. They hinge our very salvation through Jesus as a man and a son of Adam through Joseph's genealogy, through Joseph's lineage to King David. That's what they're doing. So one of our great Presbyterian forefathers, a, a man I don't quote nearly often enough here in the pulpit, uh, J. Gresham Machen said this about Jesus as the, the adopted but very real son of Joseph. He said this, Joseph's adoption of Jesus means that Jesus belongs to the house of David just as truly as if he were in a physical sense the son of Joseph. He was a gift of God to the Davidic house, not less truly, but on the contrary, in a more wonderful way than if he had been descended from David by ordinary generation. The promise of David being kept depends upon the legitimacy of Joseph's being the father of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that his son would sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever. Jesus must be David's son. And in order for Jesus to be David's son, he must be Joseph's son. Why am I belaboring this? Because adoption is real. God endorses it. He practices it. He hinges our salvation on it. Adoption is to really make someone your son or daughter. And that means the world to us because our God is an adopting God. Paul says this about us more than once in his letters. He tells us that in Christ we receive adoption as sons. He says that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Our own church confession summarizes the Bible's teaching on adoption by God. In part, it says that in adoption we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon us. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption. And inherit the promises as, as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's from our church confession. It's, we've got a chapter in there on the subject of adoption, because the subject of adoption is so important to the Christian life. If human adoption is just pretend, then that would mean that our adoption by God is just pretend as well. We need to understand the beauty of adoption. We need to get Jesus' family right because it matters for our own salvation, it matters for our assurance, and it, it matters for our security in Jesus. When God adopts us, he doesn't pretend that we are his children. And we are not pretending that God is our father. We really become his children. And if we have a wrong doctrine of adoption, then we will have a weak and anemic doctrine of salvation as well. We need to understand adoption or we will be plagued by the fear that we're only pretending to be God's children, and that he's only pretending to be our father. No, because 
because of adoption, we really are his children and he really is our father in the only meaningful way that really matters. Do you think of God with that kind of intimacy, that kind of nearness? Jesus specifically says here that if you follow him, that's how you should think of God. Think of God as your father and think of Jesus as your brother because it's really true. Because we're not playing make-believe. Because this is real. He's pushing back. Um, um, he's pushing, pushing back against, I think, our own tendency to see Jesus as far away, as removed, as distant. Or if we think of Jesus as near, to think of the Father as removed and far away and distant. And yet he's actually as close as a brother. Proverbs reminds us there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We read that last week. Isn't Jesus giving his listeners, including us, isn't he giving us an invitation to think of him like that here? Think of him as near, not far away, because he is. Third, Jesus resisted the idol of family. You know, in this passage, Jesus doesn't drop everything for these people just because they're his relatives. Um, As is often the case, I, I appreciate this moment in the text because Because in it, Jesus shows that even he faced the temptation to raise his family to a higher level than he should have. Jesus faced the same temptation. You know, this is a moment where Jesus could have said, you know, I have a mission. I have been given a task by my father, but I really need to put my family first. And Jesus faced the temptation to put them before his mission and before his his work. He, He faced the possibility of setting aside his mission because of family. Now, I really feel like I've got to pause and talk about this phrase, idol of family, because there are some Christian quarters in which this phrase gets used, and it is not healthy. It's not healthy what's being said. Um, What some people mean by the idol of family are very different than what I mean when I say it and what I'm saying here. Because there are some quarters of modern evangelicalism and that what they want to do is this. They want to accuse the church of making it the family an idol simply by teaching what the Bible says about family. Uh, by teaching that it's good for a family to have a father and a mother. That it's good for a father and a mother to have children. Not mandating it, but saying it's, this is a good thing. This is the way that God's ideal is meant to be. And there are some quarters of, of, of what is sometimes called evangelicalism, who are saying, you need to stop teaching that because that's making an idol of the family. Um, Places that are even calling for the disillusion of the nuclear family as if we needed more of that in the world today. Criticizing brothers and sisters who seek to encourage it. That is not what I mean when I'm talking about the idol of family. Uh, I do not believe, and scripture does not teach, that teaching the importance of parents having children and children having parents and raising up a family in the Lord could possibly become an, be called an idol. It's just a biblical norm. It's a biblical responsibility and a teaching. We can make idols of the families we have, but we can't make Jesus' teaching an idol if he has said it and if he has taught it and if we're just being faithful to it. When I use the phrase idol of family, I do not accuse Christians of making the idea of family an idol. I don't accuse Christians of overstating the importance of family. In fact, the reality is we probably need more of that. In fact, 
I'm sure we need more of that. If anything, we in the modern world undervalue the idea of family, even in, uh, even in, even in evangelicalism. With the rise of no-fault divorce in the 90s, with the slowness of young people, even among, even among those in the church, to pursue marriage, um, with the tendency of American evangelicals to have fewer and fewer children than their counterparts throughout the world, I think it would be a radical stretch to accuse the American church of making the family an idol simply because it is teaching what is biblical, that it's good to have a father, it's good to have a mother, it's good to have children. Um, If anything, we need to be taught about the family and embrace it again. That is not what I mean when I say the the idol of family. Okay, I've said what I'm not saying. What am I saying? (laughs) What I mean when I say Jesus resisted the idol of family is this. He did not let his dedication to these people, his brothers, his sisters, his mother... He did not let his dedication to them ever eclipse his relationship to the Heavenly Father. Nor did he let them get in the way of the work that God had given him to do. He does not place them above the call of God. That is what I mean by the idol of family. Now we can absolutely do this. We can absolutely do this. Our our families can become something that we do place above God in our lives if we're not careful. I was looking to pass the blame here to somebody else. And so I reached out to some friends who are pastors from across the country, not from this area. And, uh, and I asked them, I said, in what ways do people in your congregation need to be practically encouraged away from idolatry when it comes to their families? So I'm going to share with you some of their answers. Just so you know, these are my friends stepping on your toes, not me. I'm just, I'm just the messenger. Very conveniently, the way I structured this. Really proud of myself. So, <laughs> so here's one pastor said this Parents need to be warned about consistently missing church because of sports and family trips. One family wanted to join our church, but then missed four out of the next five Sundays because of their son's gymnastics. Instead of teaching their child that his life revolves around the Lord and church, their whole life revolved around him and his competitions. Another, fam- another pastor said this to me. One way family idolatry shows up is when the family can't bear to even be apart from each other. Kids can't go over to someone's house. Parents can't go out on their own because they need family time. Another pastor told me this. He said, for some families, there is a tendency to lift up their child and refuse to really assess their true spiritual state, especially if they're older, college age, young adult, or adult children. Another mentioned this. Some parents idolize their children by letting them be the ones to really run the home. Instead of training their children through family worship, going to Sunday worship, and catechizing them, they're trained by their children, whose desires are considered to come first. And if I had reached out to more pastors, the list would probably be even longer. There's nothing exhaustive here. Um, but perhaps it gets your mind running just a little bit. This is an opportunity for self-reflection. These are things for us to at least consider. In your own home, how are you doing? No doubt there are ways we need to reevaluate. We need to reexamine. Here's the thing. I'm not doing this perfectly nor I'm convinced is anyone else in this room. Um, We are not the heroes of the story 
And so when you're looking for real inspiration here, you might think we're going to come up blank. I, I can't think of any family in this room. I just wish that we could all be like, right? Because we all see the flaws in one another and we see the flaws in ourselves. So what is a person to do? We look to Jesus, right? We look to Jesus. He's striking the balance. He's doing this well. Because what does Jesus do? He resists the temptation to idolize his own family. He, he doesn't put them on a pedestal. He doesn't let their veto distract from God's calling. They don't get a place of priority over God and his, his demands. Um, he even corrects them like we see here when they need it. So he, he replaced their own insistence with solid teaching about what it truly means to be his family. Jesus is the head of the family who never fails and never idolizes. He perfectly loved God above his family. None of this means he didn't love his family. Love doesn't look like giving your family whatever they want. It looks like giving them what they need. It looks like washing them in the word, even when they might not always want it. Um, Love certainly doesn't mean he downplayed the importance of the family or rejected the institution of the family. We know that he loved his mother. What does Jesus do at the cross? While he's hanging on the cross, he uses his remaining breath to commit his mother to John, the disciple that he loved. He says, take care of her, my brother. The model that Jesus gives us is not a model that disregards the family and it doesn't result in hating or rejecting the family. It means never giving them place of priority over God and his call in our lives. So in all of this, Jesus is is making an invitation to us today. I don't know if you see it. I hope you see it. It's right here. It's an invitation here to make God our family, to find our identity and our purpose and our security there in in him. He's giving an invitation to forsake everyone else in our life if necessary. In fact, that's a, it's a reminder that the people in our own life may forsake us like his family did. Instead, he's inviting us to pray with David. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. That's a passage that you've heard me mention before. My father died more than 20 years ago. That is a passage that is precious to me. Maybe you don't have a fully structured nuclear earthly family And you feel yourself lacking something. Take David up on his invitation. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. You know, I don't like adding to God's word, but I certainly think that it would be appropriate to say, though I have no father or mother, the Lord will take me in. Though I have no son or daughter, the Lord will take me in. Though I have no brother or sister, the Lord will take me in. The invitation for God to be your family. He is inviting you to have God as your father. He's inviting each of us into the family that he is making. You may have a wonderful family that loves the Lord and makes, and makes you feel loved. Or you could have a family that for any number of reasons you're estranged from. Jesus says, you be my brother. You be my sister. Come to my father today. How can we do that? How can, how can you be his family? Well, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother or sister or mother. When you hear that, what do you think? Do you think, well, I have to, I have to do the will of God. I have to, to be his, his son, to be his child. I have to do something. I have to work, work more. 
push myself, achieve more, look to myself more. Is that what Jesus is telling us when he says, the one who does the will of my father? Well, we saw this already, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus preaching what the will of God is. And the gospel has thoroughly been marbled throughout all of Jesus' preaching. He has never once called upon people to be better people. That's not what the will of God is. Instead, Jesus prays in another place that he thanks the Father that he hid these things from the wise, revealed them to children. And then he said, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. His will is gracious. He gives to the weak what they need, not the strong. He cares for the poor in spirit, not the rich. We come to him empty-handed, not with full hands. In John 6, 40, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, when Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father is my brother, he is not pointing you back to yourself. He is inviting you to do the will of the Father like these disciples sitting around him. What are they doing? They're sitting there and they're looking to Jesus. They're learning from Jesus. They're sitting at his feet. They're putting their hope in him and not themselves. And that is why people streamed in to see him, to be in his family. And if you look to Jesus, if your hope is in Jesus, then guess what? Your family too. Not pretend family, but really adopted. And God will really be your father.